Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but right now we have um, another terrific person. His name is Scott Terry. This is where you applaud. Applaud loudly. <laughs> so they just need a little prompting, you know, like they're waiting to prompt, you know. So, so um, we're here for his book, Cowboys Armageddon and the Truth: How a Gay Child Was Saved from Religion. I want to read a few things that some people said. Uh, Jeff Mann. Uh, author of Purgatory said, an inspiring depiction of human endurance and the heart-healing balms of generosity and kindness. Scott Terry's stirring memoir illustrates the maiming pain that families can inflict on their members, especially the young and powerless, and the many ways that orthodox religion can isolate and warp its believers. And a nice, kind review from Kirkus says, a lively, affectionate autobiography with messages of inspiration and acceptance. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Scott Terry. Cool. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear me okay. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I want to first thank Skylight for, for having me here. I would, one thing I want to point out is bookstores have a really tough time these days since so many people don't go to bookstores and people don't read as much anymore. So I really hope that, that while you're here that you buy a book. It doesn't even have to be my book. Um, and it doesn't even have to be like one book. You could go home with 10 books, if, if you wanted to. I just want to make sure that we support um, a bookstore who is kind enough to invite me here. So what I want to do is I'm, I want to give you a little bit of background um, on why I wrote the book and where I come from. Um, and then I'm going to read some pieces to you from the book. And then at the very end, we'll hold all the questions that you might possibly have. We'll see where that goes. Um, just to give you some background, I grew up, or I was born, I didn't grow up, I was born in Inglewood. Um, but that's not really where my family came from. My family, my, my father's parents were immigrants from the Ozarks during the Dust Bowl, moved to California. They raised their four children, soon to be five children, in a one-bedroom cabin in the town of Newville. Um, which is north of, of Sacramento. Um, it was a one-bedroom cabin, no running water, electricity for one light bulb, um, 
it, it was no bathroom in the house. The number of people that were in the town at that time were less than 10, five of which were my family. Um, they bought that house for $1,000. My grandfather did um, what, what you saw in Brokeback Mountain, if you saw the movie, um, where those two boys were up in the mountains grazing sheep on, on federal Forest Service land. My grandparents did the same thing. They leased Forest Service land and ran cattle. Um, so we spent, when I was a child, we spent a lot of time up in the mountains in a place that we referred to as Squaw Camp. And so my grandfather, grandmother, um, my father's side of the family were very, very poor. My mother's parents were basically going broke trying to run a worm farm in the town of Orland. And my mother and father met at the Orland High School. Um, when my mom was 17, she became pregnant with my sister. Um, my father moved us down here, down to LA. I was born in Inglewood. Um, two years later, my mom kind of saw where life was headed and said, this is not me, and divorced my dad. And he then joined the Jehovah's Witnesses. So we're going to talk a little bit about Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, he was pretty lost. He joined the Jehovah's Witnesses and then married a woman named Fluffy. So there are pieces, the, the pieces that I'm, the key pieces that I'm, I want to read to you is I'm going to read you a little bit about Fluffy. I want to read some things about Jehovah's Witnesses. I want to read things about coming out as a gay man, particularly a cowboy, um, and some rodeo pieces. Um, and then we'll hold some questions after that. So first thing I'm going to read to you is the first page of the first chapter. First page. My real mother traded me away for a horse. My stepmother, Fluffy, wanted me to have that information when I was seven. Her name was not, in fact, Fluffy, not in public. My father referred to her as Fluffy in intimate and private moments, but she would have beaten the living daylights out of me if I had ever called her Fluffy. I was doing chores in the kitchen that morning, clearing the breakfast dishes from Fluffy's dinette set with her mother, while the two of them unexpectedly went off on some bitter conversation about my mother. I stacked plates from the table, eavesdropping on their complaints, not daring to join, but craving information about the woman who had given birth to me. I did not know my mother. People did not say nice things about my mother. Fluffy griped about the state of things that day, the non-existence of my mother in particular. She turned slightly over her shoulder to me and stated, your mother traded you to your dad for his horse. I watched her exit the kitchen, wondering why she had brought that story up again. She'd said it before. Five steps into the living room carpet, Fluffy found herself overcome with laughter at the epiphany of an unexpected joke. She stopped to throw it in my direction. She looked at me and said, yeah, and your dad got the short end of the stick. And she laughed some more. That was Fluffy. Now the reality is that my mom did not trade me for, for a horse. But that's what Fluffy wanted me to know. Life with Fluffy was a little tough. She was born and raised as a Jehovah's Witness. Um, my sister and I had chores from her um, very, very early. At the age of five, one of our chores was washing dishes, um, and fully washing dishes, unrelated to an adult helping us. So I washed dishes at the age of seven that day. Um, another chore that we had was walking to the local grocery store in Los Angeles where we lived. Actually, I think at that time we lived in Hawthorne. Um, we were never in the nicer parts of town. We were either in Inglewood or Hawthorne, mostly. But so at the age of five, we would walk to the grocery store and buy Pepsi for Fluffy. Um, as a five-year-old, unaccompanied by an adult, we were on a, on a Pepsi run. So later, we moved to a town called Fillmore in Ventura County. 
It sounds funny saying that because I'm guessing you all know where Fillmore is, given that I'm here. When I do this reading in Salt Lake City, I have to tell people where Fillmore is. So, so while walking home from Safeway on a Pepsi run for Fluffy, I stopped in front of a newly built but still vacant home. Our Fillmore subdivision was peppered with vacant lots. No fences, no trees. I was seven. Construction crews roamed our neighborhood. With fluffy six-pack of Pepsi in my hands, I stopped to watch a sunburned and overweight blonde guy pour concrete at one of the new houses. He knelt down to his knees in the hot summer sun, smoothing out freshly laid cement, his shirt discarded nearby. His, his pants hung, half, hung halfway off of his butt. I should be able to say that, but it... Uh, I stared for the longest time, inexplicably drawn to his nakedness. After delivering the Pepsi to Fluffy, I snuck out of the house and went back for a second titillating look, not knowing why I found him so fascinating, but feeling the curious pull of an interest that I didn't have a name for. I was seven. Most people that I know who are gay know when they're seven. They may not know what it means, may not have a name for it, may not know what to do about it, but we know. I knew. So one of the things, however, that I had a real hard time with was as I got older and got to be a teenager, all teenagers go through some sexual maturation period where you start questioning and wondering what it is, what life's about, and why you're attracted to certain things and not other things, and you have girl problems and boy problems and all those things. It, all that totally confused me. I fig finally figured out what it all was when the Jehovah's Witnesses came out with a book called The Youth Book. The youth book, so the ex Jehovah's Witnesses in this room, and there's a few of us, um, know exactly what I'm talking about. The youth book was a book that was written specifically for children, um, and it was written to help explain sinful things that we didn't understand. I loved the youth book. I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. It answered things that I didn't, I'd never heard of, I'd, I'd, lots of things. Before I get to that, though, I want to discuss a little bit about Jehovah's Witnesses, because some of you may not know a lot about what Jehovah's Witnesses are about. Most people that I talk to are aware that Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate birthdays or Christmas. That's not what you need to know. That, that's not really relevant. It's true, but that's, that's not really an important piece of being a Jehovah's Witness. So I decided a while ago that the best way to describe something about the Jehovah's Witnesses that I think gets the point across, before I get into my book, because I'm going to show you something out of one of their books. The Jehovah's Witnesses have two primary magazines. There's one called The Watchtower, one called The Awake. This is a bound volume of The Awake, and I'm going to show you a picture. So this is a front cover of The Awake magazine. There are 26 children on this cover. They're all beautiful children, they're all Jehovah's Witnesses, they're all dead. They all died when they were children, because they weren't allowed to have blood transfusions. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that blood transfusions are a sin. That's not the wacky part in my mind. The part that, that I think is just nuts is that for a Jehovah's Witness, it is perfectly normal to take the pictures of 26 children and plaster them on the front page and then refer to them as children who put God first. That's the, the mentality of Jehovah's Witnesses that I think is more important um, to realize. That they have a a very skewed view of life and people and humanity and what you can and cannot do. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses came out with the youth book in 1976, I got my copy when we lived in Fillmore. We went to the, uh, the annual district assembly, which was a huge assembly that was held at Dodger Stadium. So we went to Dodger Stadium. I got my new book. I still have it. I have it down there, in fact. Um, 
And I opened it up in the car ride back to Fillmore, and I looked at the, the table of contents, and chapter five, the, the title of that chapter was Masturbation and Homosexuality. I knew what homosexuality was because my dad had told me. I, I got that homosexuals were guys who liked to wear dresses. Got it. So, and I knew that wasn't me, um, but that's what my dad insisted, so I, I believed it at the time. I'd never heard of the word masturbation. So in the car, I asked, what's masturbation? I, there was dead silence in the car. Nobody was going to say a word, which told me something. All right, that's the chapter I need to turn to and read. So I did. So this is what chapter 5 says. And again, this is written for a child. Should you experiment with your sex organs? This is funny, by the way. Is there anything wrong with rubbing them in some way until the excitement is climaxed? This practice is called masturbation. It is very common. Lying and stealing are also common today. Yet you wouldn't say this makes them natural and proper, would you? The common cold is quite universal, but this certainly doesn't mean that you want it, does it? Weakly giving in to sexual desires by masturbation will certainly not give you strength when faced with a situation tempting you to commit fornication or even homosexuality. Just the opposite. It cultivates wrong thinking and wrong desire. In fact, masturbation can lead into homosexuality. In such instances, the person not satisfied with his lonely sexual activity seeks a partner for mutual sex play. This happens much more frequently than you may realize. Contrary to what many persons think, Homosexuals are not born that way, but their homosexual behavior is learned. I got it. Like, okay, now I, I knew what masturbation was. I had a word for something I'd already discovered. I couldn't quite figure out how that was going to make me want to wear dresses, because that's what homosexuals did, according to my dad. But still, it's like, okay, I got to quit the masturbation um, at the age of 12. So... That was the youth book. The youth book also had an explanation for how women became pregnant. Now, one thing that I want to point out about Jehovah's Witnesses is two primary tenets. Jehovah's Witnesses believe, number one, that they refer to themselves as being members of the truth. And the reason why is because they believe they have the truth, the one and only truth. It's the one and only path to God. So they refer to themselves as being members of the truth, but pretty much behind closed doors. They don't show up on somebody's doorstep and say, hi, we're the local members of the truth. It's what they use to identify and recognize each other. Anybody who is not a member of the truth is referred to as a worldly person. Worldly people are bad. It's that simple. So if you are a Jehovah's Witness, you do everything possible to limit your contact with people who you consider worldly. Um, the second thing about Jehovah's Witnesses is that they tend, they believe and have always believed that we are in the last days, the end is near, and Armageddon could arrive tomorrow, or tonight, if we're lucky. It, it's, it's everything about life is built around the belief that you are the one and only chosen people and Armageddon could come tomorrow. So if you believe that Armageddon could come tomorrow, or is probably going to come tomorrow, it, it changes, it, it affects how you live life. You don't need to save for retirement. You don't need to send your kids to college. You don't need to go to the dentist. All of those things will be solved um, when the end comes and, and Armageddon arrives. So from my perspective, I had an extremely, for, for other reasons as well, but extremely controlled and, and isolated childhood. I didn't have friends. If you are a Jehovah's Witness child, you don't join clubs at school. You don't play sports because that's associating with worldly people. So. In my case, when we lived in Utah and Wyoming, I was the only Jehovah's Witness kid in town of my age. So there, I had no friends, um, zero. I didn't know anything. So at the age of 12, when the youth book came out, 
and it discussed things like masturbation and how women became pregnant. I just thought it was the greatest book ever because it explained things I'd never heard of, like how women became pregnant. And I, I don't know how I could explain this in a way to tell you how clueless I was. I, I think today most 12-year-olds are a little more advanced than what we were 30 years ago. I didn't know. But the Jehovah's Witnesses in the youth book explained how women became pregnant. Single sentence. The husband lies close to his wife so that his male organ fits naturally into her birth canal. Birth canal? I was 12. I, I didn't know what a birth canal was. So from my perspective, at the age of 12, I thought, all right, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to grow up, and I'm going to get married, and on my wedding day, I'm going to have to ask my dad, which side of the woman will lead to the birth canal? Didn't know. Is it the front or back? Didn't know. So again, I was 12. So. Jehovah's Witnesses also, not too long, well, a few years later, we're going to launch forward. Um, I was in high school. In high school, most kids start talking about college or somebody else starts talking about college and asking where you're going to go. I wasn't going to go to college because if you're Jehovah's Witness, you, you don't need to do that. So I'm going to quote something, and again, I'm quoting something that is coming from Jehovah's Witnesses, not reading a piece of my book, but the quote is in my book. Many schools now have student counselors who encourage one to pursue a higher education after high school, to pursue a career with a future in this system of things. Do not be influenced by them. Do not let them brainwash you with the devil's propaganda to get ahead, to make something of yourself in this world. The world has very little time left. Any future this world offers is no future. Make pioneer service the full-time ministry with the possibility of missionary service your goal. So sign me up. I was going to be a missionary for Jehovah. That was my plan. I thought, I'm going to graduate from college or high school. Don't need to go to college. I'm going to go to the place called Gilead where they train missionaries. And I'm going to go overseas. And I'm going to trade watchtowers and awakes to poor people for chickens. Because I'd read lots of experiences of other Jehovah's Witness missionaries who had gone overseas and where people don't have money, but they have chickens. So they'll trade you a chicken for a watchtower. And that's how I was going to spend my life. It didn't actually happen out that happened that way, and I'm not going to tell you why. I don't want to give away the, the point of the book when I leave. But in the end, what really happened in my case is I went to college, and I became a rodeo bull rider. I went to college not because I thought I needed to go to college. I went to college because I wanted to ride bulls. I started riding bulls in Northern California in Redding. Um, I went to Montana to ride bulls and to rope there. Had no intentions of going to college. I didn't think I needed an education. But when I got there, I went to a place called Dawson Community College. It's in the eastern side of the state. It had the number one, the men's number one rodeo team the year before. So I thought, that's where I'm going to go. I showed up there with $600 in my pocket, which was scholarship money I got while I was in high school. And I found out $600 wouldn't cover the cost. And I was that clueless. I, I, it just didn't occur to me to ask. Um, how, I don't know, but I didn't. So I got there, signed up, and when I figured out I didn't have enough money, the financial aid office pulled me aside and showed me a student loan application. And I can tell you, I signed the application, the student loan application, and distinctly remember signing it and telling myself, I am never going to have to pay this back because Armageddon's going to come soon. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I also promised the financial aid officer that I would need all of the money to pay for college, and a week later I spent half of it to buy my first horse. Um, so it was, it was, I mean, I had horses before, they weren't mine. This was my first horse, the one I'd paid for. So we, uh, I, I got up there with the intention of 
becoming a rodeo bull rider, which is what I had done in college. In, in college, I team roped, I rode bulls, I rode saddle broncs as well. Um, went up there for college rodeo. So I want to read something to you out of the book about that. Our team traveled from rodeo to rodeo on weekends, shacking up in hotels, four guys to a room, two in each bed. College cowboys have two activities on their mind during rodeo road trips, getting drunk and chasing wool. Teammates were speculating on why I wasn't chasing, and I'm not going to use the word here in, that I write, I'll just use the word girls. I wasn't chasing girls known as wool in cowboy terms, and I'm not making that up. I know that sounds unbelievably crude, but, but to cowboys, that's that's what we would say. We would go out to the bar after rodeo. My buddy Tim would say, I'm going to get me some wool tonight. And I thought it was crude then. But anyway, that was the phrase. So teammates were speculating why I wasn't chasing wool. The perfect opportunity to prove my masculinity and assuage their concerns arrived by accident at the Crystal Bar in Bozeman, Montana. The Crystal's claim to fame was liquor up front and poker in the rear, which is a double entendre that's accurate. It's intended to be funny and has been claimed by many cowboy bars. The legal drinking age in Montana was 19 at the time, but most cowboy bars were willing to overlook the specifics of how close you were to hitting that target. So I went to the Crystal to have a few beers with my buddies after the rodeo. Having a bull ride to complete the following day, I wanted to leave long before anyone else. Some sleep would be good, I thought. So I went back through the poker room and departed out the rear entrance. I held the door for a young cowgirl who was also on her way home. As I was being courteous and escorting her out, a couple of teammates came through. I held the door for them and latched onto the pretty cowgirl. We walked out to the alley together and my pals assumed that I was leaving with her. I disappeared into the darkness accompanied by a hot cowgirl. In their minds, I was about to get some wool. In the dark, I walked across town to the Best Western where we were holed up for the weekend and I spent the night tossing and turning on a cold pile of lumber on the backside of the hotel parking lot. Around 8 a.m. the next morning, I staggered back to the room to wake my buddies and fuel their conjecture with graphic lies of what I had done with that cute cowgirl. She was really wet, I told everyone. I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> I had done it with her three times, I claimed. The news spread quickly. By the end of the day, every guy in the team knew that Scott Terry had finally gotten some wool. What they didn't know was that I had an enormous crush on another team member, a very handsome steer wrestler whom I will call Buck. Just seems to me that if I'm going to tell a story about sexual tension between two cowboys, one of those cowboys should be named Buck. I adored Buck, and I was really confused by the realization that he found frequent reasons to sleep with me. Choosing another cowboy to bunk with was generally a last-minute decision when we checked into a hotel, and you could never be certain that the person you originally thought you would sleep with was, in fact, the person you would actually wake up next to in the morning. It wasn't unusual to arrive back at the hotel after a night of drinking and find that your bed was occupied by two people. Your original bunkmate, whose body was wrapped around a girl whose name you did not need to know, and then you'd be forced to go search for an empty bed in another room. But that rarely happened to me, because Buck generally slept in my bed. I didn't know why. I went out of my way to keep my distance from everyone on the rodeo team, not wanting to put myself in the position of having to explain why I wasn't chasing wool. Social distance was imperative. Social distance prevented questions from being asked. 
At the Missoula Rodeo, Buck and I left the bar early. He was on his way to being drunk. I drove his truck back to our hotel and we walked up to our room on the second floor. Buck turned the TV on and stripped down to his boxers and sprawled out over the bed, practically inviting me to look. We ordered a pizza to be delivered. He fell asleep, a hard, beer-induced sleep, and I took long glances at his nipples and his body hair and the access hole gaping wide in the front of his baby blue boxers, wanting to touch him, wanting to explore what was passed out before me, wondering if he shared my desires, wondering why he often bunked with me, wondering if he would awake if I dared to touch him. So if you want to know if I touched him, you got to read the book. So. <laughs> That's, that's as much as I can tell you without giving away critical pieces of the story on what happened in transitions and, and things. But at this point, I'm happy to answer any questions you might ask except for what happened with Buck. So, <laughs> any questions? In the Bay Area. So, if, an, an odd thing, so I was born here in Englewood. We didn't live here that long, but in from, the eight, from birth to the age of 18, I lived in five different states. In the, the school years, 13 school years from kindergarten to high school, I went to 12 different schools. So we moved around a lot. Um, the bulk of the reason for why we moved around, other than the fact that my family was very poor, was that life with Fluffy was really, really challenging. And other Jehovah's Witnesses would comment on it a lot. And every time they did, my dad, and Fluffy would get embarrassed and pack us up and move. Um, so, so when people ask, or someone once told me I'm a native Californian, and at the time they told me that, I thought, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not a native Californian. I lived in Wyoming and Utah and Montana and Washington, and, but I am a native Californian by, by the definition. It just at the time, it didn't feel right. So, yes. When did you decide to write the book? On the day that my grandmother died. I have, um, who the person I refer to is my best grandmother. I sort of had three grandmothers. I had uh, my mother's father, or my, my father's mother, my mother's mother, and then Fluffy's mother, all three of whom acted as, as grandmothers. But the one that was my father's mother was just a really huge part of life. And on the day that she died, I just, I, I, my aunt called me. I was sitting in my living room reading the paper, drinking coffee. My aunt called, and the first thing that popped in my head is I'm going to write a book about my grandmother and my life with her. And I wrote the very first line of the book, which is, is the introduction, not chapter one, which is, my best grandma died today. Um, I wrote it on that day. And then I spent two weeks trying to talk myself out of it, thinking, this is just stupid. I, I, I don't know anything about writing a book. I've never written a book before. It might take me, I don't know, a year. It took seven years. Um, but um, after about two weeks of that, I finally, I literally had sleepless nights all two, for the whole two weeks. I finally, one o'clock in the morning, just said, okay, fine, screw it, I'll get up and write a stupid book. I did. I got up and I started writing. It was the coolest thing. If, if, if there's one thing I would tell people who, I, I think there were lots of people who are writers and just haven't done it yet. It, it's, it, I, I describe it as, it, everybody knows somebody who plays in a little garage band, right? People who play music don't do it to get rich. If you're a musician, you play music because you have to. If you're an artist, you create art because you have to. If you're a writer, you write because you have to. It was really life-changing for me um, to do this. And, and once I did it, um, in fact, this is Ruth Greenstein here, who is my editor, 
sorry, I hope you don't mind, um, from New York. Um, she had sub or suggested to me somewhere along the line that I take some excerpts from the book, the manuscript, and submit them somewhere just to get them published somewhere else. So I did. I took a piece, sent it to the San Francisco Chronicle, and it, it was a warm and fuzzy gardening story. Um, sent it to the Chronicle, the home and garden section, an hour later they sent me back an email with a contract and said, we'll pay you $300 for that story, write more. Um, so I wrote for the Chronicle for about a year and a half. Um, now I write for the Huffington Post. It, it's funny how it just developed into lots of things, which has just been really fun. Mm -hmm. Did you ever wish that your dad no, no. If it, it, for for those of you who haven't read the book, I didn't I didn't give you lots of detail about Fluffy. Um, life was really pretty horrendous with her. But but what I also know is that the Jehovah's Witnesses give something to the people who who need it. People who I think really are attracted to that religion need answers. They need somebody to tell them, here's why everything is so bad in this world, and here's why you don't really need to worry about it. You don't need to try very hard to overcome it, because Armageddon's going to come soon and fix everything for you. And so for my father, who I haven't spoken to, I've spoken to him really once in the last 30 years. Um, you know, I, I think about somebody who has spent his entire life as a Jehovah's Witness to leave would require him to recognize that he has wasted his entire life as a Jehovah's Witness waiting for Armageddon to come. And regardless of the fact that I don't want to have anything to do with my dad or my stepmother, I don't wish that on anybody. That would be, I, I can't imagine what it would take to, to realize that, oops, wrong path. I'd rather you just continue. What about your sister? Do you still see her in? I'd, I'd, I don't, because my sister and I were incredibly, incredibly close all through childhood. Um, she went back to the Jehovah's Witnesses. When she did, and I don't want to give away too much of the ending, but, but I address it in, in the ending of the book. Um, when she did, that was the end of our relationship, essentially. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses can't tolerate somebody who's gay. Um, and especially they can't tolerate somebody who is an apostate. So if you are somebody who leaves, who willingly gives up the religion, and you are gay, there is no room for you, and in, in, in it's in fact one of the things that um, some of the people that are in this room are people that I've connected with on on Facebook. There's there's a pretty active organization or, or group of ex Jehovah's Witnesses on Facebook, and and tons of us tell the same stories that once you leave the religion and you come out to families being gay, that's it. You can bump into your mother in the grocery store, and she will pretend you do not exist. Um, it, it's a pretty horrific way of, um, it, it's, it's, it's the reason I showed the, the dead children picture. Um, if you have that mentality that it's okay to, I don't know, lose your children or allow your children to die um, over a blood transfusion issue, it's pretty easy to write them off as well if, you, if they tell you that they're gay. So, I don't have any sympathy for the Jehovah's Witnesses as, or, as an organization at all. Okay. I guess can you talk about, I guess, uh, your, your new life and how uh, all that is sort of transitioned to, to, uh, to an author who writes for? I think I had always thought I was going to be a writer. And, and for me, again, without 
I don't want to give away too much of the, the story, but I essentially left um, the Jehovah's Witnesses and my parents, um, not exactly intentionally, particularly in the case of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I ran away from home um, when we lived in Utah. And it, it was just the right circumstances and the right people who came along to help me. But it wasn't an intentional decision to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses. It was it, just the fact that I ran away was enough to get me away from going to meetings three times a week at the Kingdom Hall. And once time went by, I was able to think for myself. It wasn't an intentional thing. It was absolutely accidental. Um, ended up going to college um, and being quite successful in the business that, that I run. Writing was never something that I really thought I was going to do. It just happened. My grandmother croaked, and I thought, great, write a book. And, and there it is. Um, and, and today, I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction out of writing. Um, it, it's fun. So. Can you comment a little bit on knowing you were gay and writing in that period of your life? Mm-hmm. 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 It was, so I spent a fair amount of time in writing, Chico, um, Utah, Montana, Wyoming. I knew. Um, the, the day that I really figured it out was when I was 15 and I saw the movie The Great Train Robbery with Sean Connery. Um, I think that was only, I was 15, it was the only, it was the second PG movie I had ever seen. I'd never seen an R-rated movie. Um, and there was a scene in there with Sean Connery, I mentioned this in the book, um, with his shirt off in bed, and I walked out of that theater and said, I'm gay. <laughs> it, 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 you know, thanks, Sean Connery. Um, it, it, I always knew, but I was never, ever, ever going to do anything about it. From my perspective, I was the only gay guy on the planet like me. It, because everything I had always been told and heard and read was that all gay guys wore dresses and were effeminate. It wasn't me. I, I was really sure I did not want to get naked with a guy in a dress. Um, just, you know, even 16, 18, 20 was never going to happen. Um, so it took a while. Th there were a couple of, of incidents in the book um, that I kind of realized, okay, this is not going away. Jehovah's not going to fix this. Um, I can't pray about it any harder, it's, which is what I had done for, for many, many years. And, and for me, unlike lots of other people that I know who really struggle with it, particularly gay people who come from a religion like the Jehovah's Witnesses, I didn't. Once I realized, all right, this is who I am. Praying is not doing a dang thing. Um, I was done. It, it was, I, I'm, it was a switch. It, it was a, a, a decision. In, in fact, I'd, I've never said this before, but it just occurred to me. The day that I ran away from home was probably the, the day that everything in my life changed, because that was the day when I realized that I actually had more control over my life than I thought. And I had the ability to direct what I was going to do next and to make happiness. Um, and I don't know that I would never have said that at the time, but looking back, it was absolutely the time where everything changed. And I think that a few years later, when I finally realized I'm gay, it's just what it is, deal with it. Um, it was it was real easy. But at the same time, and and again, I'm telling a story that's in the book. But um, the very first trip I made to San Francisco, I had met a guy in college who I knew was gay. I'm um, not going to tell you how that happened, but it's in the book. Um, but he insisted I had to go to the Castro in San Francisco. Castro is the gay neighborhood in San Francisco. So I 
went to San Francisco, I rode BART into town, I parked 25 miles away and rode BART into San Francisco because the idea of driving into San Francisco scared the holy heck out of me because you know, I drive a truck. Um, I rode BART, I walked from the very first BART station, which is the Embarcadero, across town to the Castro in boots and Wranglers, dressed exactly like this with a map of San Francisco sticking out the back pocket of my Wranglers. Um, and I got to the Castro and I see all these guys who are looking at me and I was just positive that none of them were gay. Unless they were in a dress, I was just sure they couldn't possibly be gay because that's not what I thought. The only gay guy that I knew who wore boots and wranglers was me. Um, so, there's more about that in the book. But. You both got some nice surprises. <laughs> it, it, it was a, sh it, they were shocking things. So, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, they're very, well, sure, why not? It, this is in the book, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, very first experience I had was, I was in Chico, and I went to, I don't know why I'm telling this. The thought that I'm going to stand up in public and tell you this, this story is, is, you know, I'm 21 years old, 23 actually, 23, never had sex. I went to the adult bookstore in Chico and I bought a swingers magazine because I couldn't buy a gay magazine because then the guy at the counter would know I was gay. Couldn't deal with that. So I bought a swingers magazine. God only knows what I'm going to do with it. But there was an ad in there from a guy who claimed to be straight. Um, he was a contractor. He lived in Cloverdale, which was a good three-hour drive from me, 150 miles. No picture, but he was a guy that described himself as a guy like me, and he just had this ad and with the phone number. I called him, and he answered the phone, and, and I, I, I could have puked. I was laying on the floor talking to him, shaking so hard that, that I, I couldn't talk right. I let him do all the talking. I drove halfway we met in Clear Lake because in my mind the only other guy that could possibly fit me would live 150 miles away three hours away in Cloverdale it couldn't possibly be where I was I still had this absolute belief that I had grown up with that what the Jehovah's Witnesses told me what my dad told me about what it meant to be gay so l learning that what I had been taught wasn't right that was a bit of a progression um, and, and a learning experience. But once I figured that out, um, then it was pretty simple. Do you find yourself still repressing those ideas now? Like, the ideas that the truth had given you? Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I would, I would classify myself as being very, very anti-religion. Um, I, I can... I think religion is a good thing for some people in that it allows them to, to figure out how to live life in a way that they think is pleasing. Um, I think religion does so many things um, that are harmful to people, um, in particularly from my experience, that I, I have absolutely no religious belief at all. So I, I never, ever have any thought in my head of wondering, what if what I was told was true? Yeah, never. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Nope. Not none of that at all. I mean, maybe 
Nah, I don't think I've ever. I think once I made this decision, all right, that's all horseshit. I don't believe it. it just, I, I'm, I'm kind of bullheaded. Um, I, I, once I made the decision, I was clear. There's no way. Anything else? I don't. I don't. The last time I rode was in '96. That was the last bull ride I had. Yeah, you didn't seem to be limping. So I'm wrong. Oh, well, I got I got a scar from here to here. Um, that's not in the book. Um, I was in a Coleman High School from a from a roping accident. I never got hurt actually from riding bulls. Seriously, they were all horse wrecks. Um, so I, there were some battle scars. But it, at the age of 32, which had been '96, I sort of um, had this epiphany that. Bright people don't do this. Um, and and my, my last ball ride was in Denver. So, so, okay. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.